Well, should we start? The yeah. Show? Do you want to kick? Do you want to? Do you want to do the? Do you want to kick it off? Okay. Well, folks, <laughs> welcome to our guys. Um, our guest today is. Oh no! Am I doing it wrong? Yeah, you're you doing do it wrong. I'm sorry. It, hey, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> My name's Harper. Oh, and I'm Jonathan. <laughs> and welcome to Hawkeyes. Authentic knowledge and feelings. I feel it. I feel it. Okay, I know where you're going with this. You want a little clip that makes everybody laugh and feel good. You know what I mean? Instead, it's like, Whoa. but I'm really not funny. No, no, and no. We thought you were relieving me of all of my introductory duties <laughs> including saying my own name no i'm just saying because we there's so like you know we say i'm harper and then you're jonathan and then what hawkeyes and then that's when i cut the theme song in oh okay yeah right. and then the theme song goes right now yes that just happened yeah oh so good oh god i love that theme song anyway it is uh, amazing oh that voice you hear just there that's today's special and wonderful guest coming in remote from oakland it's max valet Hi there. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for flying in on such short notice <laughs> <laughs> from Oakland Airport. It is a pleasure. Long time fan of the pod and fan of the pods that are behind it. First time caller. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Max, uh, what's your what's your relationship with Ethan Hawke like? So my relationship with Ethan Hawke started as many people did with training day Mm. and at the time i was so distracted by the charm of denzel washington that i think i kind of wrote ethan hawk off for a number of years as being some sort of like filler male lead that and i didn't pay a lot of thought to his uh performance keep in mind i was also in high school at the time which um was not famous for forming lots of really good opinions on almost any subject much, much later, I really started um, appreciating him more. That's when I saw him in uh, Boyhood. I saw him in First Reformed more recently. And also just by listening to a lot of the material that you guys have brought up directly from him on the podcast, um, I started appreciating the sort of the sense of craftsmanship that he seems to bring to his roles, this sort of not, not, not a remove, but a certain intellectual approach that see, where it seems like he's really probing out his roles. Um, and now I have been looking forward every time I see him on a cast list. Great. Yeah. Um, just wondering, have you seen Dead Poets Society or did, did that ever factor into your knowledge of Ethan Hawke? It was a film that I saw. Also in that high school period, where at the time I was trying to like hit a checklist of films other people told me I should see, and it did not register to me at all that that was Ethan Hawke in the film. Yeah, that's <laughs> so totally much later. I was like, oh, that was that was Ethan Hawke. 
Yeah, younger. I don't think I realized that it was like I I had a concept early of who Ethan Hawke was until I rewatched Dead Poet Society when I was like a little bit older. Because mm-hmm. I think the first time I saw it, I was in middle school and I was like, oh, these are just teenage white boys from the eighties, you know. And and that was Ethan Hawke's real breakout, I guess, too. So, you know. Yeah, and again, it's like kind of he's kind of not like the the first thing you think of when you see that movie. Same with Training Day, you think of. Mm-hmm. Robin Williams, you know, true in that, in that situation. So <laughs> in Training Day, Training Day, yeah. <laughs> <That's> yeah. <laughs> could, you, could you imagine if that was switched though? If it was uh, Denzel and Dead Poet Society, and Robin Williams and Training Day. Oh my god, those would both be provocative films. <sighs> it would be fun. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I would be I really. Think interested. Could, I, I think, think they, they could, could do, do it. it. Yeah, yeah, they're both you know both very skilled actors. Because. Max, have you seen um, Insomnia? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that that to me is like the 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 test case for Robin Williams' like ability to play that kind of character because he he pulls it off pretty well, I think, in that movie as the not 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 good guy in that spoiler. I guess. If it had been Robin Williams in Training Day, that would have formed like an amazing trilogy. It would have been like. Training Day, One Hour Photo, and Insomnia. All films with Robin Williams just becoming unhinged. I did not see One Hour Photo. I don't know that one. I'll have to. Yeah, I don't. Check th- it I out. never caught that one. I remember it more for a very vivid sort of jump scare in the middle of the movie that traumatized me. Very, very brief period of trauma. <laughs> uh huh. Um, yeah, well, Denzel doing training, I mean, doing Dead Poets Society, what would that look like? I, I feel I like... Mean, he has that kind of... He, he, I feel like he has the potential to do he that He could be of, like, like an inspirational, inspirational... Yeah, type of figure. So. Yeah, I'm just thinking about him like in Man on Fire with Dakota Fanning. Like, you know, he has a, a kid care for children kind of... Yeah, yeah. yeah and he'll kill thing. for them. Yeah. If he needs to. <laughs> he'll equalize for them. Yeah, he would just kill Robert Sean Leonard's dad. In Dead Poets Society, and everything would be fine. Oh, so it's it's Denzel from an action movie yeah. in Dead Poets Society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, very cool. Yeah. <laughs> it would add this whole background sort of racial dynamic about why he's being pressured to leave this school if he's just with this mm-hmm. group of you know, young white people. That's true, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not just because he taught them to be individualist think- thinkers. It's, yeah. Yeah. yeah it, only, it only sort of turns the entire like themes of the movie into this sort of front for people just trying to get him out of there for prejudiced reasons. Mm-hmm. Wow. wow. Well, we've got, we've got we have a lot to think yeah. about now. <laughs> <laughs> we, Hypo- hypothetical think, movies uh, is always a topic rich for discussion. It is. Yeah. I don't think we've spent that much time. Well, no, we've talked a little bit about like could, you know, Putting putting different people in different movies. Yeah, so far, and I also feel like we much. we talk a bit about like how we would change some of the movies that aren't our favorites, oh, like yeah, how sure, we would amend sure, them. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of movies that aren't our favorites, <laughs> Brooklyn's <laughs> oh, Finest. No. I'm gonna venture a guess that this oh. is maybe not everyone's favorite movie that they've seen so far. Well, okay, it's not my favorite movie, but I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was fun. I uh, check out my review on Letterboxd already up, but uh, um, uh, spoiled the appetite for the podcast. I I don't know. It's fine. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you should also be following me on Letterboxd. But <laughs> uh, 
you know i think that we we dive in deeper on the podcast so it's fine mm-hmm. um but yeah i did i i'm just gonna say i enjoyed it i thought that pretty much everything about it worked for me except the only thing that didn't work was that federal agent who was really one-dimensional who just seemed like she was there to like be racist and be like to thwart don Cheadle, mm-hmm. you know but other than that like i was willing to like accept pretty much everything else that went on in the movie and just kind of like watch this antoine fuqua movie you know yeah yeah no i mean i i, I had fun with it as well i think that like a lot of the criticisms of it are that the characters are kind of like they're kind of cutouts of you know yeah. tropes but yeah but i think that the performances are like strong enough that it's fine like it's not like you know because so. i feel like ethan hawk did a good job and i think that we get some like this isn't exactly the same character that we've seen from him before because we've seen him play cops before yeah. but this time he's playing a cop whose motivation is like uh you know he's he's being motivated to do something bad for his family you Mm -hmm. know for like you know and that's i this that exact thing is not something we've seen from ethan hawk before and i think that he did a really good job of carrying that kind of storyline and that kind of and he you know uh had a good performance and i also think like richard Gere, i was surprised by how like at the beginning i was like Richard Gere, he looks like he's just, you know... Richard Gere. Richard Gere. Uh-huh. But then I, I kind of got into it, and I accepted his character as well. And I thought that Don Cheadle did a really good job. I was I was probably most invested in Don Cheadle. Yeah. I would agree with most of what you're saying, Harper. I really enjoyed the performances. This is something of a skill that I've had to pick up by watching Anthony Hopkins in movies that don't deserve him is really <laughs> admiring what great actors can bring to performances and how they can wring extra like texture and dimension out of a script that just doesn't really have that on the page. And I think all of the, the three leads here did a phenomenal job of that. Um, Ethan Hawke mm-hmm. was the performance I probably liked the most. Dean Sh- Don Cheadle also doing a fantastic job. Um, but all of them were just emoting in this way where, especially like Hawke and, e- and Cheadle, if you just looked in their eyes during a bunch of scenes where they were just in pain, mm-hmm. like they just, they were, they were bringing it a hundred percent. Script writer bringing it 30 to 40%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Totally. Well, that's how I feel about... I mean, that's really my big defense of Judy from 2019, starring Renee Zellweger as Judy mm. Garland. Like, I... That movie, not the best movie I've ever seen, to be quite honest. Yeah. But every time Renee Zellweger came out and, like, did a song or, like, was Judy Garland, basically I was crying the whole time Renee Zellweger was on screen because mm-hmm. she's that good. And... You know, so I think there is really something to be said for like actors that can carry a movie that's not written as strong as their performance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think another thing with, uh, I think just okay. I mean, I mean, I haven't seen that many of his movies, but just with like Anton Fuqua movies, it's like mm-hmm. I feel like there's a certain extent to which you kind of have to accept the ridiculousness of what's going on because it's coded in this layer of like grittiness and like realness. I I feel like we've gotten to a point where we for some reason equate grittiness with realness, yeah. but like so there, it's coded in this level of grittiness, but underneath there's often something kind of just absurd going on. Like even with Training Day, we have like 
the whole I mean there's just a lot of stuff in that movie that's just kind of like melodramatic mm-hmm. but it but it works because it's just so it's so entertaining and because I think he's he really excels at like creating tension like every moment in this movie felt pretty tense in a in a pretty like well in a well directed way and in a well acted way and yeah Mm-hmm. There was this doomsday clock hanging over the proceedings and you felt pretty palpably that each of the characters was sort of ticking forward towards whatever their particular grim fate was going to be. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. So we see some pretty clear deadlines. So with Ethan Hawke, his character is trying to put a down payment on a house because they live in a house that has a really severe mold problem and he has a pregnant wife who has asthma and lots of children. Mm-hmm. They have I they just keep children keep kept came coming out from all sides. So I was like, how many could they possibly have? I I feel like it's you know. I believe the like, reviews said seven children. Really? And I, I I didn't I didn't keep like a tally mark on my notes page, but even that was like my God, they were there really that many? Well, there was the the little girl. There were the two boys that wanted a turtle. Um, there was the teenage daughter, and then uh, Lily Taylor was pregnant with twins. Oh my so god! So that's six at that least. That gets us to six. Yeah, um, and then I don't know if you count the teenage daughter's friend who probably just was there all the time. Then I guess that's like seven. But <laughs> uh, yeah, they seem to have a lot of kids, and so he wanted to make a down payment on a house so that the kids could have their own space. So they could have a turtle, yeah. and also so that the wife wasn't suffering from the mold in the air in the yes, house. Yes. Um, so that was that was important for him, and he had a deadline where he had to have enough money for the d- down payment. Yeah. And for Richard Gere, uh, he had a calendar where he was counting down to retirement. So that was yeah. we have one week until he retires, <laughs> which I assumed meant for sure that he was going to die. Which yeah, is it, not was, what ends it was his sort of Donald Glover calendar <laughs> of counting down towards retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then we have Don Cheadle, who doesn't exactly have, like, a strict deadline in the same sense as the other two, but he's trying to get out. He's working undercover, yeah. uh, and he's trying to get out. He wants to, you know, go be a detective, sit at a desk, like, not be in, you know, undercover in the life anymore. Yeah. Um, and so that's something that's important for him to get out of soon. One, because his wife is divorcing him. Two, because it's hard work mm-hmm. and it's just really taking a toll on him. And it, especially psychologically, because he describes how, um, you know, he was in the car with some some other guys from the gang who were like about to like shoot down a cop who was who had pulled them over. And he was like, yeah, no, I was going to let that happen. Mm-hmm. You know, so he's in too deep. Yeah. As happens when you're undercover. And uh, so, yeah, that was his deadline, which isn't. You know, a strict date, but it was he needed to get out. Yeah, there was there was an implicit um, addition to what was giving him a tight deadline, which is that because um, his friend played by Wesley Snipes had just gotten out of prison Mm -hmm. and was he was now going to be betraying someone who he was more invested in personally. Yes. So sort of almost immediately after he gets out of prison, his job description becomes like setting up this guy who saved his life. And so it clearly kind of like added to the urgency that mm-hmm. like a betrayal of this uh, guy that he valued on a personal level is going to be coming very soon. And 
The, uh, yeah, based on the Agent Smith character, it was almost immediate. They wanted to set him up for a fall. Hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can we discuss, though, what the introduction to the movie and the Ethan Hawke character is? Because the first scene in the movie right. yes, yes. is Vincent well, did not... Before that, though, I just want to say the title card. It says Brooklyn's Finest in this kind of, like, traditional font. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just very dramatic, like... You know, so we know what we're getting into is something kind of silly, but you know, but serious. But serious, yeah. yeah. Uh, we have Vincent D'Onofrio and Ethan Hawke sitting in a car together, like next to a graveyard or something. Like mm-hmm. there's some there's some heavy-handed like visuals going on. I don't know if they're next to a graveyard, but they're uh, next yeah, to I think they something. were. No, it's a cemetery. Absolutely, oh, it is. Okay, yeah. Um, and they're just like talking about stuff yeah vincent d'onofrio is telling a story about when he got caught drunk driving and how he got out of it because he was on parole Mm -hmm. and so he kind of concocts this whole story about how he had been in a bar drinking and he wasn't planning on driving but uh these other guys got into a fight with him and the only thing he could do was get away by driving away and Mm -hmm. so he had to tell the story to the judge and you know yeah yeah and they're like having a laugh about something they're saying righter and wronger and they're laughing about that. And then he I, just shoots him in the head. Yeah, that was crazy. <laughs> brutal. Yeah. yeah. I just want to say I also wrote having a laugh. And I think that the only reason why we both use that phrase is because it's of marriage story. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Matt, uh, Max, did you watch Marriage Story? Still not yet. It's oh, okay. Memory. Well, there's one really iconic Adam Driver line from that film. Where he says, you shouldn't be mad that I fucked her. You should be mad that I had a laugh with her. And so we say that all the time now. <laughs> yeah, and true. I think that's why we both throw that Seeps down. into our subconscious. Yeah. Unfortunately here, having a laugh is also a foreshadowing to a bad end. So yeah. true. Yeah, but yeah so... he just shoots him in the head. I know. You don't, it's so crazy to put Vincent D'Onofrio in a movie just to be like killed immediately. Yeah, yeah. What a wild choice. But this isn't the last time I think we're going to see. I mean, obviously not the last time we'll see Ethan Hawke and Vincent D'Onofrio in a movie together. But I don't think it's even the last time we'll see Ethan Hawke and Vincent D'Onofrio in an Antoine Fuqua movie together. Oh, okay. That's so, fun. Yeah. They were- Back went out, by the way. Uh-huh. Hawke's character, as traumatized by shooting Vincent D'Onofrio as the audience is in that moment. Mm-hmm. There, was, there was a beat. Where I was like, did did someone else outside yeah, shoot them? Too. Because Hawk just looked devastated. Yeah. yeah, I was wondering that as well because you don't really see him. He's he's like kind of sheathing the gun. He's like it's kind of hidden. Yeah, and it's really fast. Yeah, so it's hard to even tell that he actually did it. And yeah, like you're saying, he's like so shocked by what he just did um, that you don't even you're not even sure at first if he actually did it. And then he like grabs his money and it's like leaves. Mm-hmm. Crazy stalks away for a few paces and then starts panic running like everything everything about uh hawk's physical performance in this scene this is already i was like kind of like sitting up like oh hey i I hadn't heard much about this movie but like i'm really interested in what i'm seeing from hawk's character because he seemed like to really convey this like sudden desperation out of nowhere while at the same time theoretically being the one in control of his actions during this scene like i was that was i was like ooh. Brooklyn's finest. This could be the finest. Let's find out. I was very excited after that first scene. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I've talked about this before with with Ethan Hawke, but, like, you know, he's kind of known for these, for a lot of these, like, 
talky kind of roles. Like, obviously, we take, like, Boyhood or, like, I mean, any Richard Linklater movie he's done. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, it's easy to kind of undersell his ability to, like, physically act. I think he's I think he's good at, like, conveying emotion and feeling and action through just through his like physical his physicality uh and and, in addition to his you know his words his big words (laughs) totally and i mean this is the moment that i think of of him like physically acting is also actually from before sunrise Mm -hmm. um where he's in the train with uh not the first train but like a cable car um with julie delpy and he reaches out to touch her hair and then pulls his hand back and like i feel like that's like a really strong you know that's true visual Uh, visual piece of acting from Ethan Hawke and I always think about that mm-hmm. so yeah it's a good one he's great he's great <laughs> you know I don't know am I is this Stockholm Syndrome because we've watched 40 Ethan Hawke movies in a row maybe <laughs> but uh, you know I like him I can't I can't imagine reaching like the 25 mark and being like you know maybe maybe Ethan Hawke's a bit of a disappointment <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, yeah, it's, he's good, he's good. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. <laughs> you, you heard it here first, folks. Ethan Hawke, good actor. <laughs> Hawkeye's podcast will stand behind that sentiment. Yeah, we're the first people to say that. That's right, we approve this message. <laughs> um, so yeah, so after this opening scene, it shifts over to Richard Gere, who has the most iconic, like, uh, troubled detective, uh, troubled cop opening like he wakes up he's startled awake too like the alarm goes off and he's clearly been having like a nightmare or something because he like jumps out of bed and then he pours himself a drink first thing and throws it back and it's just such a classic cop thing we've seen it from ethan hawk before in assault on precinct 13 the same exact opening uh you know so yeah so that's who richard gear is he's the cop that needs to drink to even get his day started yeah and yeah. I was just going to say, what if Ethan Hawke is, this is him from... Assault on Precinct 13. No, from, uh, from Training Day. This is who he becomes. He becomes the same Ethan Hawke? Oh, that's so Richard tragic. Gere? The same character, Jake. He be, this is still Jake. Richard Gere is Jake. No, Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke is still Ethan Jake. Ethan Hawke is still Jake okay. yeah, in this movie. <laughs> um, it's, it's tragic either way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he would have had to move to New York. He just wanted oh, to go. Yeah, it is in LA. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because in uh, in Trading Day, he was um, you know writing parking tickets in the valley. Yeah, you're a long way from Starbucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was that like was that Dr. Dre that says that? Probably. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. So there's um, a critical detail of that scene that you have not that I mentioned. Left out. Oh yeah, that he pulls the, he pulls out a gun and he puts his out, puts it in his mouth and pulls the trigger. And so like he, no bullet comes out, but he's like either like playing Russian roulette or he's practicing for when he's going to actually do it. Mm-hmm. Um, th- th- this is when I slumped back in my seat after having become <laughs> attentive in my seat during the first scene because it, th- this was just every dial that they could ratchet up on like cop story melodrama yeah. they just cranked it up ripped off the knob 
op opened the, the panel to see if they could somehow get a few more watts in there. It's just so much to be introduced to a character with. Like, uh, j just seeing Richard Gere looking kind of hangdog waking up in the morning, I could believe, like, okay, this is a guy who's ready to retire. Like, by the, by the time he's reaching for the gun, I'm just like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Are they just going to kill him off right away, too? <laughs> I was wondering if we were going to get one of those things where there's like three scenes of course over the course of the movie where he puts his gun in his mouth. Um, there's a few other uh, th th things running through the movie, motifs, where they had sort of a one, two, three structure with you know the, the action or surprise on the third incidence of that action. Mm -hmm. And so I noted like the gun in the mouth. It's like a possible, are there going to be more guns and more mouths? <laughs> Is this going to be sort of a waiting for the curtain to fall situation? But no, it's it's just a very, very heavy-handed way to tell us a lot of information about this character that is very sad. Very sad, Richard Gere. Yes. Yeah. Ethan Hawke is also very sad, I would say. Pretty sad. Yeah. Uh, he loses a scene sad. where he goes to confession shortly after this. Yeah. And I did like the way that scene looked. It was very yellow. Uh, and he's... It would seem like a kind of like weird uh, confession thing, though. It wasn't what it usually looks like in movies. I'm not, you Something know. a lot about it. It yeah. was a little odd. It felt like maybe it was a set. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so he's he's trying to confess for having killed Vincent D'Onofrio's character yeah. without saying what he did. Yes. And uh, and the priest is trying to you know tell him that he needs to get help or figure out yeah i don't know whatever the priest is trying to be comforting or whatever but uh then ethan hawk says i don't want god's forgiveness i want his help it's like mm. yeah. yeah chef's kiss line yeah that was that really was, good yeah so good and ethan hawk is acting the heck out of this scene like he's so He's clearly religious because later we see a scene where his shirt is off and he has a giant angel on his back. Yeah. Uh, and he's also <laughs> obviously pretty torn up about doing it. Like, I think he's like a good guy who's in a bad situation. He's just like he feels like he has to do all of these bad things. Um, and what I, this, the part that I really liked about this, though, is like, he's like, can we just do a few Hail Marys and get through this? And so then he does them and he's like, this has been really good. Thank you. <laughs> I really liked that line and his delivery was great. Yeah. Yeah. The Ethan Hawke character is a little confusing to me because like to try to square the guy and his kids and like that of that character with because, OK, the thing is, is that. All the the idea of this movie is that we're like escalating to this like you know breaking point. Every character is escalating to this breaking point. But with Ethan Hawke, we start at a hundred. We start at the most dramatic thing that he does in this movie, which is again shoots a dude in the face yeah. in a car by a graveyard. <laughs> like there's no there's no more that you there's like no more tense that you can go from there. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's a little bit hard to, like, square that with, like, oh, you know, the other parts of his character that I think are supposed to feel a little more, like, good guy in bad situation. Because, like, again, he shot a dude in the face in a car. 
<laughs> like yeah. it's just it's not that's that's not to me that's not a good guy bad situation setting like that's a pre that's a premeditated like murder you know mm-hmm. so it's a little it's a little i don't know that, that that that's a little shaky to me well i think part of the setup of that though is because i have a note here after the confession that scene that says omg ethan hawk is a cop so i think the setup is we're supposed to think that he's like a bad guy yes, involved yes, in crime yes, 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 yes. and then he walks into the police station puts his badge around his neck and you're like oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. you know um so I think that the effect probably of going all the way with that first that with that opening scene is so that we we realize like how bad it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost structured as a way to make it sort of a dramatic reveal when you see him in the sort of the cop briefing scene that like, oh my god, this guy's a cop. But I actually have a pet theory about this, which is that I feel like this whole movie you can almost read Hawk's character as kind of having a breakdown that like almost like he had steeled himself up to do that action to kill this guy and take his money that he'd, you know, he'd justified for the well-being of his family. Mm-hmm. And then was sort of so traumatized by what he did that the rest of the movie he's kind of cracking up. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. He, 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 there's a lot of scenes where he has this intense kind of manic energy. People talk and mention that it's like, he hasn't been like this traditionally, that he's doing something kind of weird and different from his normal behavior. So it's almost like he is like, tra- he traumatized himself by shooting someone else. He's the real victim here. And, <laughs> he, and, and, and we're sort of watching his, him falling apart until we see exactly how bad it is. Maybe maybe by the end, he'll be able to pick himself up and get some help. Yeah. No. Uh, I watched the movie. That doesn't happen. <laughs> I, I think also, I mean, it's interesting because he does, like maybe that part of this breakdown is that he develops this sort of, because there's like this desperation in the scenes where he's like trying to get the money to get this down payment, like the, the desperation there compared with how he acts in like the raids because he's basically part of like the squad that keeps I, I, I he's like a detective and he's leading the squad that's doing these raids um in this building where this incident happened and he seems like very calm about like just shooting people throughout the movie because he shoots quite a few people. Yeah. Like, as part of the raid. And, like, some of them are, like, yeah. basically unarmed. All of those raids felt really illegal. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. internal affairs should have been on them. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, he ugh. just, he like, there's a lot of people that he shoots that, like, don't seem to have guns on them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, th- th- this kind of felt like All Cops Are Bad, the movie. Like, every almost all of the actions that we see police officers taking over the course of this movie are morally compromised at best. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And then it seems like you get further up the chain and you just get into a worse and worse human being culminating in Agent Smith and her kind of incredible scenes of where she is just being so loathsome Mm -hmm. that you sort of hope that she somehow gets taken down over the course of proceedings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking of Agent Smith, so her her storyline is she's part of the Don Cheadle plotline, 
So Don Cheadle plays Tango. He's, uh, you know, he's an undercover cop. Um, and he's in too deep. And so he has, like, a connect on the outside who's, like, his, you know, his guy that he goes to a diner to to, like, report information. Yeah, yeah. And get, you know, more further assignments from. Um, and so this guy keeps clearly keeps promising that Don Cheadle is going to get a promotion. Just like just one more thing, just one more thing. And, the, the you know, the one more thing never pays off and he's never gotten this promotion. Um, and now the this federal agent is getting involved as well. Yeah. We, in his introductory scene, he establishes, they establish, take time to establish two things. One is, you know, don't call him Clarence. Uh, he prefers mm-hmm. Tango. And the other is he refuses to eat bacon. So they seem to establish that he's either Jewish or Muslim. And I don't remember if they ever followed up on this no. with something That's they were developing true. there. It, maybe it's just a little bit of sort of texture to this scene. But they, they, they put enough emphasis on it that I wrote it down. Like, hmm, let's yeah, let's see yeah, where this. Yeah. yeah, no, that's true, and it doesn't it doesn't turn out to have any significance. Yeah, no, and what was interesting though is also that, um, I mean, the only thing I can think of that's remotely related is that later Michael K. Williams like accuses Don Cheadle of having a turn the other cheek attitude. And that's like only mm. like tangentially related because turn the other cheek is like biblical, you know. Right, right. So, yeah. but that's that's it. Yeah, and considering how heavily they lean into the religiosity of Ethan Hawke's yeah, character, totally, and to only possibly allude to it with Don Cheadle, yeah, and not really establish establish what it means, mm-hmm. or he just doesn't like bacon. Yeah, that's also. But possible. I don't. Well, he I said don't turkey so. bacon. Yeah, yes. I mean, he just doesn't so, like pork. Yeah. Pork, yeah. But that, okay, that's why it felt so specific. It wasn't just like, oh, this character doesn't like this type of food. It was yeah. like, turkey bacon, yes. Pork, no. Right, it's right, like, right, right. That's true. It's, and also, it, it's like, I feel like if it was a thing where he just didn't like it, he could just not eat it. But it's like, clearly, he didn't want it on his plate. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. he didn't want it to be given to him at all. Yeah. So it does seem like that there's some sort of more again, like religious significance there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cheeto also killing it, I think, in this scene in general. Um, Oh, yeah, he's so good. I wrote wrote down that line he had uh, mentioning how the uh, desk, suit, tie, that shit is my water. And that was great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That that is a sign of someone who, like, give him a desk job, get him out of dealing with his day-to-day. That did a lot along with just Cheeto's. Cheeto does a great haunted eye um mm-hmm. he he can convey again great physical performance and just conveying a lot and giving extra depth to lines with his face and i i 100 percent was believing like this is a dude who he's kind of rotting away in this undercover job and he would at this point rather be writing parking citations than having to betray people on a daily basis yeah mm-hmm. i think it, i think it is it's i can occasionally forget like how seriously good Don Cheadle as an actor because he's great because of Oceans yeah because the movie that I like the most that he's in is yeah Oceans 11 and that, <laughs> that just unimaginably terrible that, accent that yeah that accent that is so insane <laughs> yeah that yeah I mean I love that movie so much and yeah 
And just that accent is just crazy bad. Well, I will say he's really good. And this movie somehow comes up almost every week. Traffic. He's in Traffic, and he's really good mm-hmm. in that. Um, Boogie Nights. He's also good he's in Boogie Nights. Flight? I guess he is. Huh. I don't know who he... Well, he's second second build on Flight. Maybe he's like the investigator or something. Yeah, I don't remember. We got to rewatch yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. That's a movie that I'm like... That I like that I think is maybe not as critically beloved as some other movies. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I never saw Miles Ahead. I did want to see that. It's where he's Miles Davis. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Nor I, nor I. Uh, but yeah, no, Don Cheadle's great. Like I, he's very consistently good, except for that insane accent. But um, <laughs> but you know, I always enjoy seeing him. And, he, and he's in the Marvel movies. He's in. Is he in the other two Oceans movies? Yeah. Is he in Twelve and Thirteen. He's in all he, three. He has the same accent. He's the same character. Because so yes. I genuinely feel like they could have just dropped the accent, and no one would have like begrudged him for. It. Yeah, <laughs> but you gotta Oceans have like continuity a... fans. Yeah, because there's because ju- there's no reason for him to have they okay again like the bacon thing except the bacon thing it just happens once and we move past it. Like, the <laughs> accent thing happens throughout the entire movie. It's never explained why he would have like where he's from, why he has this accent. It, you always have to be like have a scrappy Cockney guy on your on your crew. You know, it's That's what he mandatory. Was supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A hundred percent. It's just you could yeah. do some sort of reverse etymology and look up. Okay, where in the world do people say Barney Rubble to mean trouble? <laughs> <laughs> and you could you could sort of zero in on that location. Yeah. Oh man. Oh man, I love Cockney slang. So wild. Like, how do they keep all of that in their head? You know, there's like I know that it's rhyming, but then how do you know what you're rhyming with? It's it's it truly doesn't not. I can't. I can't understand it. So well, you're not Don Cheadle. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, it's crazy, but then I think of all the pop culture minutia that I've safely stored away until my death, and that's true. Yeah, I, I, the the human mind it contains a library. Yeah, that's true. Um, one other actor in this movie that I wanted to call out. So uh, Richard Gere, he starts to get. Uh, he he's like given an assignment to train a young guy because they're pairing up older detective or older cops with younger cops to show them like the most dangerous beats, you know. Yes. And so Richard Gere gets paired up with Logan Marshall Green, who is important to the Ethan Hawke cinematic universe because he uh, is the director of Adopt a Highway, uh, which is an Ethan Hawke movie that came out last year. So I think that it's it's important to note that he's in this movie because I'm sure that somehow this was this was what connected them so that later on mm-hmm. Ethan Hawke could be in one of his movies. Yeah, I like to just take note of of all the people that are uh, repeat Ethan Hawke collaborators. I did like that whole part, that whole s- segment of the movie, um, because yeah. It, so he's paired up with him and he just and Richard Gere just does not like he's just like listen kid like I don't want he just doesn't want to be doing this at all basically um and there's a scene like they're in a uh there's a scene they're in a convenience store and there's like this altercation like over a candy bar going on between the manager of the store and this young kid um and Richard Gere goes outside to basically 
he's like he's he's gonna go check his ID. ID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the young guy in there shoots, or he I don't does he he doesn't kill him does he he like no the young the the rookie cop played by Jesse Williams from Grey's Anatomy, mm-hmm. um he. He's supposed to keep everyone cool, you know, because there's like tension between the shop owner and the kid. And so he's trying to keep them all cool, but he's doing a terrible job. And yeah. so they end up starting to fight. And so then one of them pulls like a hammer or something. I don't know. They pull some kind of weapon. Um, and so then uh, as a reaction, Jesse Williams pulls his gun out and he's pointing it at everyone. Yeah. 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 And um, and then what he does is he takes the kid down and he shoots the gun right next to the kid's ear at the mm-hmm. ground and make and causes him to go deaf. Wow! Right, yeah. right. And this is his second. This is his second rookie already because the first yes. one got assigned to someone else, and then you find out that he got killed in the mm-hmm. line of duty. And that's where Ethan Hawke and Richard Gere, I think, interact for the first time. Yes, they're both at the precinct, and there's like a bulletin board, and there's the mention of this. His cop that get this other cop that gets killed. Ethan Hawke is like, oh bummer, you know, he doesn't know who this is. He's just like, oh, that's unfortunate. And Richard Gere is like actually kind of affected by it because he realizes that perhaps if he had like handled it differently, he would still be his partner, and none of the other stuff would have happened. Mm-hmm. And well, it's s- a bit strange because in terms of handling it differently. Like, he gave him some fairly good advice, which is, hey, if you don't have jurisdiction in this district, don't just start arresting people. Yeah. Like, that's, that yeah. seemed like an actually pretty savvy bit of advice. And the But then the rookie is kind of like, man, Richard Gere, he, he sucks. I want to be with someone who will let me, like, <laughs> who will let me be an action cop. Yeah, yeah. Who let me? Who let me be uh, the Rock and Samuel Jackson from the other guys? <laughs> <laughs> I think I th- yeah, but I think it's like interpreted as like sort of this extension of his sort of apathy and world weariness and all that stuff. So yeah, I I interpreted him looking at the bulletin board as sort of the beginning of him beginning to care again a little bit because he looks at the notice um i believe there's something there's something like a cash reward for like information related to so i assume that there was like some unresolved issue and that's when he also he looked over and he saw the missing persons notice Mm -hmm. and this, this is in contrast to the scene where um his commander or commanding officer told him that he was going to be on this sort of rookie supervision beat. And he basically just said, yeah, I don't, I don't care. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do anything that means anything. I just want to like leave and go fishing in a week. Yeah. 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 Which is again, an incredibly bleak uh, scene of development where almost literally it's presented as the sort of the classic don't, don't you want to still go out there and, make some kind of a difference and Richard Gere, with very little emotion. She's like, no, I don't want that. <laughs> yeah. I, I care about that in my last week on the job. Yeah. Give, give me my cake. Get me out of here. Yeah. Not just in his last week, but in like every week, I think that he's never really felt a strong need to like, you know, do good necessarily. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, we see him when he goes to visit the prostitute that he's been sleeping with. Um, this is when he sees, he sees a girl, being like she's like vomiting and she's being essentially like carried by these two sketchy guys and so then he looks and then he just looks away you know and same with when he's still with the first rookie 
he tells him like don't take the job home with you you know that seems to be how he lives his life is don't take the job home with you Well, after 22 years on the force you know that's so true (laughs) he also gets put down at one point where um someone in command explicitly tells him sort of you've never been an exceptional or like otherwise commendable officer but eh, good enough (laughs) yeah that just the fact that you would like say that to to this guy who's like been on the force for a long time and is about to retire to just be like, yeah, I mean, you're not great, but you're here. It's just pretty, yeah, it's pretty cutting. And there's a lot of like kind of cutting scenes toward Richard Gere where he's like, like again, the aforementioned scene where the girls, the girls being dragged into the van and the guy's just like, Hey, what the fuck are you looking at? And then even at the precinct where he's like going through his locker, there are these two like basically like locker room bullies who are, who are cops who are just like, hey, we're going to kick your ass or whatever. And Richard Gere is just like, uh, yeah. He, he kind of, he's kind of like calm about it, but it's kind of like sad to see that happen to him. He's like this, you know, veteran cop and these two guys, these young cops in the locker room are basically like, oh, you're a bitch. Like, that's basically what happens to him. It's pretty Basically it's pretty threatening to give him a wedgie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, oh, so one thing that I thought, you know, I haven't like watched more than one episode of The Wire, but I felt like there were some really strong right. The Wire vibes yeah, in this film. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, one thing that was a clear connection to The Wire is Michael K. Williams, who I think is an incredible actor. He was recently in um, When They See Us. He was really good in that. He had a kind of small role, but he was great in it. Um, and so he's in this as the character. Is his name Red? Something like and that, then, yeah. yeah, and he's also in The Wire, uh, and yeah, he plays Omar Little yeah, on The who's, Wire, who's, who's a, a major character, favorite. right? Yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, very The Wire. Indeed, except yeah. not Baltimore. Except not Baltimore. It was New York, yeah, Brooklyn, yes. Brooklyn's finest. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then some other notable uh actors in this um lily taylor plays ethan Hawke's wife that was very fun to see her i wasn't expecting it and i've never really thought of her as like a possible you know companion for ethan Hawke. but then when they were together on screen i really enjoyed that i i liked that a lot it just both feel like actors that have been in the business for a while that uh you know we're we're playing a scene together really well i just i i really liked it I don't have uh, a lot of substantial things to say about it, except for that they're both great actors and I enjoyed them. Mm-hmm. I remember I took some notes on the scene where he comes home and we sort of, it's really sort of the reveal that he is a dad and has these mm-hmm. responsibilities. First is just that he was driving this old silver Volvo station wagon, pretty much exactly the same model that I, like, I remember my parents driving in the early 90s (laughs) so it's clear that that was actually i thought really nice sign that hey he's financially not doing that great but you know nice safe car safe car for the kids two turtles and he calls his daughter princess Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) i I think i also noted here that in when he was washing the literal blood off his hands in the basement in front of a cross that was over the like sink basin that uh, his general energy level seemed to be at a nine 
Whereas Richard Gere was at about a two throughout <laughs> most of this movie. Yeah. He, he is, the, 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 that scene is where we really cat- catalyzes it. So he's all about the money for him because he needs the money to make things happen for his family. Mm-hmm. And he, we see some glimpses of him having some good dad energy, but he also clearly is just like really not in a good way. Like he, every moment he's like looking away from his family like he just seems to be in active pain yeah like it's rough he's literally like he's he's counting the bag of bloody money and going like it's not enough it's not enough yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. um oh yeah going back to ethan hawk and lily taylor i just want to say one connection between them is uh river phoenix um, because we've mentioned River Phoenix a lot on this show because he was in Explorers mm-hmm. and they were, you know, good friends for many years. And um, River Phoenix was in Dogfight with Lily Taylor, which is a really incredible movie. If you haven't seen it, I would highly recommend it. I haven't. Um, yeah, right I now. think basic. I think the premise of that movie is uh, River Phoenix. He's like in the Navy and he's on leave for like the weekend. And so he and the other guys in the Navy do this thing called dog a dog fight, which is like pretty fucked up. It's like who's going to get the ugliest girl, you know, to sleep with while they're on shore. Yeah. And yeah. But then he he meets Lily Taylor and he ends up falling in love with her. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a good movie. It's a good movie. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Aside from the misogyny, premise. that seems also like a contest where everyone's having a bad time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So the River Phoenix connection is, is strong there. Mm-hmm. This is like the second movie in a row, I think, where Ethan Hawke's had like an insane tattoo. Yeah. Because in this one he has so it's his whole back is it's like covered it's like in a tattoo. Angel. It's a big angel yeah. and it's like like bible verse yeah. surrounding yeah. it. Um kind of in a similar font I think to the Brooklyn's finest opening title <laughs> font. And he also has like little bird tattoos on his arms. Yeah. Which don't like stand out as much when he has this giant back tattoo. Yeah. Um but in the in what was that one? Also it was two movies ago, but uh you know What's what that one? Kill you? What doesn't kill you? Yeah. So on what doesn't kill you, he has these like uh, giant like Celtic knots on yeah, his yeah, yeah, on yeah. His, on one on each arm. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> um, it's like I get it. You're Irish. You're from Boston. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. There's been an amount of using tattoos to establish to establish who is yeah. character is. Yeah. Because um, he's shirtless a lot. But it works. You know, we got it. We got it. We he's got religious. It. He's yeah. religious. Richard Gere's character, like I mentioned, is sleeping with a prostitute pretty regularly, it seems like. Um, uh, she calls him Poppy and Papa both. She seems to alternate. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I, didn't, I, I didn't like Papa. That made me yeah, really uncomfortable. Yeah, worse. Yeah. Um, Undoubtedly worse. Yeah. But so then after they have sex, they're like doing cocaine and Go Ask Alice is playing in the background. And I just felt like... <laughs> yes! what like what the hell is going on like it was a big tone shift first off and secondly like that song like should only be played if someone's like you know doing acid like mm-hmm. that's that's like an lsd song it's not a cocaine song you know it's just it just felt tonally wrong to me they, they were i think they were just trying to convey that vibe of this sort of bacchanalia that was happening it's just a really sad bacchanalia if it's just this really depressed version of Richard Gere. Yeah. I, 
Yeah. I made point of noting that they had a heart to blowjob conversation, which also <laughs> was extremely off-putting. Just everything Richard Gere did in this movie, which is so tinged with tragedy, that yeah. even yeah. his sex acts made me feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also took point to note that that this is maybe a little cruel on but I, on paper at this point i consciously noted it so that was around the 40 minute mark in the movie by mm -hmm. the end of the scene with the prostitute i noted that sort of that no plot was actually occurring yet yeah <laughs> <laughs> i do think that this movie is too long um i think it's mostly because you have three distinct storylines that are going on and there's so much to get into on each of them and it takes so it does take a while to get started on all of the stories except yeah. for with ethan hawk where you're thrown right in at the yeah, beginning yeah, definitely. but with the other two it takes a while to get into what's going on like compared to where they end up at the end because at the end they have a clear like you know ethan hawk's still on his same journey that we know about from the beginning um and then don Cheadle, like he's on a whole new mission basically at the end than he is at the beginning because yeah. at the beginning his mission is get out from the undercover yes, life yes. at the end his mission is avenge a guy, uh, wesley snipes death spoiler right. alert wesley snipes is killed yes um and then uh richard gear his thing at the beginning is retire yeah and then at the end his mission becomes uh you know save this girl do the right thing yeah so two of them, Ethan Hawke, you know, that storyline is straightforward, but the other two storylines shift like half to two thirds of the way into the movie. Right. Like well, two thirds. Yeah. The interesting thing is that, okay, so the Ethan Hawke character is basically on a straight like bullet train toward getting this money. Right. Mm -hmm. And then Richard Gere is on like a kind of a gradual incline. Like there's a few different events that are happening that are pushing him toward like doing the right thing. It's not like there's one moment, you know what I mean? Like there's like, like we mentioned where he sees that his his one time partner has been killed, and these uh, these little moments that are building up to him like wanting to do the right thing. And then with Don Cheadle's character, there's like a big, uh, uh, uh you know, a piano that falls from mm -hmm. the ceiling, like a a, a moment where it suddenly switches <laughs> over. Yeah. So like we have like I, it's interesting that the their journeys are uh, kind of different types of mm -hmm. you know one is kind of straight one is an incline and the other is like a, a Sudden. snap yeah. yeah true yeah but all that to say that that's why this movie is like two hours and fifteen minutes long yes which yes. is longer than it should be i think this movie should have clocked in around two hours really <sighs> i think they should have shaved off some richard gear stuff mm, interesting and yeah i think they should have shaved off some richard gear stuff richard gear did feel like the third man in yeah the story yeah which is interesting because he's given top billing right yes he is i thought it, i thought that so before i watched this movie i thought what it was gonna be it was like richard gear is like the chief of a police department where they're all crooked and you know kind of like uh place beyond the pines where ray uh -huh. liotta i thought he was going to be ray liotta in place beyond the pines uh -huh. and that ethan hawk and don Cheadle were going to be guys on his team and right. that they would be you know stealing money from criminals or something like that you know what i mean yeah that's what i thought this movie was about from the poster strictly from the poster 
Yeah. I, I 100%. Uh, that was my initial impression as well. There's going to be some cop drama and there's going to be a lot of sort of tense back and forth scenes. And one of these guys is going to be corrupt and one of them is going to be unswayable. And one of them is going to be sort of be torn between both sides. And then the movie doesn't go that direction at all. The leads barely interact. Um, and I don't say that in a negative way. It's interesting that they yeah. make it almost this sort of anthology film right. where we're cutting back and forth between these distinct plot lines on related subject matter, but it does lead to, like you correctly identified, there's three different setups, which means that by even when you've gone a long way into the movie, there's still just turning on the momentum. Right. And it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of misery to take in. If it, if this was a more cheerful, upbeat, police story about corruption and degradation of the human <laughs> soul, then the, it, it probably would have not has felt as lengthy, but just it's, it's tough to see Richard Gere talking about how, what was his exact line? Uh, how, how mean the universe is out there while someone is sucking on his penis. It is <laughs> yeah. it's a tough. I was about to say it's a tough pill to swallow. That's maybe a little too tough. <laughs> Yeah, also, I mean, I feel like this is something that's come up in a movie we've watched before, like the placement of bodies while they're simulating sex. Like, I thought her head was way too high in that scene. <laughs> well, maybe, well, maybe his, his, he's more he has, gifted than you think that's, he is. That's possible, yeah. <laughs> he's got a huge talent, like uh, Christian. Yeah. Um, I, I, so, I Moulin know, Rouge it, reference It's for weird you. that, like, it, I, for some reason, seeing Richard Gere with a prostitute is unsettling to me, despite the fact that his, like, most yeah. famous role. <laughs> but, like, I saw that. I'm like, that doesn't seem right. <laughs> but it, like, doesn't make any sense. Of course, That's like, funny. yeah, his, you know, we've got a... Uh... They, they may not have had the VFX budget to do a a more comprehensive, realistic blowjob simulation. This I was surprised when I looked it up that this movie was made on a $17 million budget. This is kind of one of those mid-budget dramas that everybody in the Hollywood industry is complaining are disappearing. Um, and it it got a lot of mileage out of its money. Um, it, it Pretty much everything, like a lot of beautiful shots, a lot of real sense of like location and place. Like I, I get the sense that uh, uh, Fuqua must be very, very good at structuring his shots in order to get like this cinematic and like prop heavy and cast heavy of a movie down to a budget that slim mm -hmm. right yeah just considering how many like big name Huge people actors. are in this movie yeah. yeah i mean yeah that that is pretty crazy to think about that that's the budget <laughs> if if the actors took pay cuts just for the pleasure of working together, there is something funny about them then not working together in almost <laughs> any scene. That's true, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Magic Don Cheetah like, oh, so good working with Ethan Hawke. Uh, we, we got brunch together once on set. It was a yeah. good time. <laughs> Yeah, um, speaking of this huge cast, there are still more actors that I haven't called out. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. We have Brian F. O'Byrne, who is a huge character actor, who we know from Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. He played um, he played the guy in The Robbery Gone Wrong. Okay. And he is in this, again, as like a partner of Ethan Hawke's, essentially. Mm -hmm. He's uh, his friend on the, on the squad. 
of course. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ronnie or whatever his name is. is that who's yes, about? Ronnie. Yes. The yes. good cop. The good yes, cop. Yes, yes. The he only one. The one. The, one. the yeah. only one in this movie. He was just untainted by some form of sin that's just wafting around everybody else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then also Wendell Pierce, the wire of it all. Yeah. Wendell Pierce is also in the wire and he's in this too. Um, and so after that whole thing with the, the rookie cop making the kid deaf in the in the bodega, um, Wendell Pierce is like the head of the commission that asks Richard Gere to to go on the record saying like excuse essentially excusing the whole thing as an older, more experienced cop and Richard yeah. Gere refuses to do it. Right, yeah. And again, like I think that, that that's part of his character arc is like building back up from where he was to to mm-hmm. more being interested in doing the right thing. Yeah. Going down from whiskey and a gun in the mouth to maybe just maybe just the whiskey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, and I guess I mean we said Wesley Snipes, but Wesley Snipes. Wesley Snipes. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. a huge yes. character. So he plays uh Kaz and he is just out of prison and uh, the federal agent wants Don Cheadle to set him up so they can get him back in prison. Yeah. Um, and so he doesn't want to do it. He like storms out of the diner where he's meeting with his his uh, fellow detective and, uh, and the federal agent. He storms out. But then ultimately he decides to do it. And so he he has this like BlackBerry recording device that he uses to like record the conversation uh, where Wesley Snipes is setting up the deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he decides, he, he freaks out and he goes to the bathroom and he like throws the the recording device or BlackBerry. I don't know if it was just a BlackBerry, but it, he like puts something in it. I don't know, whatever. Yeah, anyway. I think he was just like putting in a fresh like uh, memory card mm-hmm. so that it could record all the audio or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but in that, in that case, if you're recording to that, why would you just, you would break the phone to erase the conversation. You, yeah, would, you literally yeah. just pull out a, pull a out tiny little, not very cinematic memory card and <laughs> put it in a little trash bin or something. Yeah. yeah. So he throws it and he's, you know, freaking out. And then what I, I really liked the way that the tension was diffused in the scene where a guy tries to come in to use the bathroom and he's like, I'm in here. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was really good. Even I, though there's like clearly two stalls, he tells him to like fuck off. Basically. Yeah. And this guy's like, all right, well. That's fine. <laughs> Someone's having a day. Yeah. It it might also be worth talking about uh, Ellen Barkin's character, Agent Smith. Right. So, despite all of my complaints, I shouldn't really call them complaints. Despite my characterization of this movie as sort of everyone is like a sinner, everyone's dirty. Agent Smith really stands out as just like <laughs> an absolute monster. Um, in the introductory scene, I out loud said curses directed at the television. She, she pretty much introduces herself saying, you know, like, Hey, thank you. You know, Don Cheadle for the work you did. My realtor really thanks you. Uh, so it's like, yeah. okay, yeah, so villain. He's, he's in this for the money somehow. I'm not quite sure how she gets. Yeah. Paid as a more. federal agent, how you're making like, you yeah. know, commission. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Nordstrom Associates. It's like weird that that's how it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is just narratively is just the most tense, the most racist, yeah. the most yeah. unpleasant and smug. Um, with, and the absolute 
crown jewel of it is that at one point, like in the later scene uh, where Cheadle's like confronting her angrily about everything that went down and she, he basically just like calls her out on all of her BS. What was the exact thing that he said to her? I wish I could find it. But then she, after he calls her out as basically being the scum of the earth, she just gets this really smug, like she doesn't even respond. She's kind of like, what are you going to do? Kind of face. (laughs) She's like, it's a fair cop, but yeah, I don't care. It's just, I I thought it was bizarre that, in a movie that otherwise had this sort of murky aspect where a lot of people are have very many villainous aspects about themselves that it was sort of offloading all this negative animus onto this one character and mm-hmm. performance. Yeah. It just felt you guys like have any thoughts about like why the script might have gone that way? I totally I don't understand because like for me this is the most inconsistent thing about the whole movie like or you know it it's it sticks out you know as it doesn't feel as natural as anything else in the movie like I like sure there's like a racist federal agent who wants to like specifically put this you know like black guy back in prison sure I believe that who like doesn't uh, care about this black detective sure I believe that but the way that she's written it's like she's mostly there for exposition or like to move the story along and to like be this I don't know it's just, it's just weird well I think that okay so there are a few things that I want to talk about one I think that that her character is borrowed from like other cop dramas where you have like I feel like it's a common thing in any uh, story where you have, like, a local police department, right? Mm-hmm. And you, anytime you introduce the federal agents, like, you just put them there to show, like, oh, they're out of touch with, like, mm-hmm. what the, like, real cops are going through, all that kind of stuff. Like, I feel like the quintessential, one of the quintessential examples is, like, Die Hard. You have, like, these two incompetent FBI uh, uh agents who come in and they're like we're gonna do things exactly by the book and you see how terribly wrong it goes because like hans gruber is familiar with the book and is able to throw it back at them basically um and so i feel like you we do have that sometimes where we drop in this fbi agent to be like oh this person's out of touch mm-hmm. and they're gonna fuck everything up the other thing i think that that she the reason that they make her so antagonistic and unpleasant is because i think that it's partially a way to like trigger um, this motivation in Don Cheadle to like go outside the law, basically. Right. Because yeah. Because he sees that like okay, this like this the streets are not going to be the solution because we have like the way this like street justice or whatever like is is working is not going to work because we have like Kaz who was just like killed, just shot down on the street for like you know just killed. And the law is not going to be a solution because uh, because of this cop who does not give a shit, this FBI agent who does not give a shit. So the only way to deal with this is to go down the middle and like be his own um, law enforcement, be his mm-hmm. own, be the you know Judge Dredd. Yeah. The situation, um, and I I kind of feel like that she was there to kind of make his desperation seem more. I don't know, you know, like, like he had to do this. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I just don't. I think it could have been written better. Yeah. No. Sure. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. I think you could say that about a lot of things in this movie. Yeah, but, but specifically this. Yeah, this is the biggest no. thing to me. But I mean, just the idea of why they wanted, why they did it this yeah. way. I think that's why. But, I think this movie maybe even had some strange ideas about why people become police officers. Obviously, it's painting a world where it's like there's not a lot of great reasons to be it. Everybody's miserable. Everybody feels like they're not being paid enough. But there's in addition to her bizarre like um, realtor remark, there was someone else who was sort of in this for the money, and that was um, the Jesse Williams, the second rookie. Um, because I remember he's walking and he has this conversation with Richard Gere about like why he got into it. And it's just very strange. It was like, well, you know, I'm like allergic to fire and, um, (laughs) a gun is a lot lighter than like a postal carry bag. So I guess cop it was (laughs) sort of like, what, (laughs) what was the (laughs) process that led you down to like, these are my three possible career options, policemen, yeah. Put mailman or fireman. Yeah. To go off of that, that idea of like being a cop to make money. Uh, another thing that happens is that there's this the catalytic event that happens at in the projects is that a cop robs right. someone who lives in the projects, like which a black makes kid, yeah. no sense. Right. It makes yeah. absolutely no sense. Okay. Uh, we're setting up the idea that like oh you know cops are uh, behave in you know we know that cops behave in. Uh, uh, do bad things but like the idea that a cop would rob a kid in the projects like what's like that doesn't make any sense like why would this kid have like a it just it's it's such a bizarre bizarre setup yeah and also like that plot line was like never really resolved or related to anything yeah 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 you know that's true it it just sort of set the community versus police relationship tone I, i i briefly wondered when that was happening um if this was going to be a period piece, because it actually reminded me of American Gangster um, and some scenes in that movie where there was sort of like a, there was a, a character who did like a drug buy. And then when it went wrong, they were like, oh, I, well, I'm a police officer. So I was trying to like arrest this suspect and they attacked me. And it was sort of this after the fact justification. But that kind of seemed like it flew better in something that happened, even just something that happened in a room rather than like in the middle of like the sort of the park by like a housing project. Mm-hmm. It was just, it, that was sort of strangely staged in, in order to make it feel like there was this sort of apocalyptic tone hanging over yeah, things. And, and speaking of like sort of implausible things, um, I, I felt like there's a scene where they're all, they're all sitting around and they're like playing poker right yeah and there's like this kind the of like tense poker game oh my god and there's like this sort of like banter about um the, the one of the cops is like making like racist jokes mm-hmm. and you like you can credibly believe that like ronnie would be like really set off by it because yeah because he has a black he's a, girlfriend he's, yeah and he's like a good guy and you know what i mean yeah. we've set up he's a good guy but for no it doesn't make any sense that ethan hawk would also be put off by it one because he's not a great guy um and two because we've seen like we've seen him go seem seemingly have no problems like saying like borderline racist shit to people that he's and also just like killing like just black men in in their homes 
And so the idea but it was that, like, in front of his family. Yeah, that, I that's think that was his, so, the difference yeah. maker. Yeah, yeah, his big motivator was like, not in my house, not in front of my kids. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. But then he punches him. <laughs> yeah. 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 He, has, he has a very interesting sense of conflict resolution. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I, I thought that was to try and cast this um, opposition. Because, yeah, there are these very racially charged drug raid scenes where you have this yes. squad that's yeah. all white police officers who are going in and, you know, murdering black men. Yeah. And in, in the case of Ethan Hawke, you know, trying to just basically seize the money they t- they have to yeah. use for his own purposes. And I actually thought that uh, close to the end, one of the, one of the many interesting little touches throughout the movie was... Um, Ronnie's character sort of grieving over the body of Ethan Hawke's character and the camera then sort of tracking and showing that while all this emotional energy is being spent on Ethan Hawke, it then just sort of goes and shows you the victims, you know, the, the, the men who he murdered in cold blood to rob, yeah. you know, as it you know, tracks him out of the apartment. It seemed like there was like a critique that was here that Ethan Hawke wants to be like a nice guy in front of his family, but, in reality, like, despite him having this weird hair trigger reaction, like, he's clearly, like, not thinking that much about the racial politics of what he does. Or if he is thinking about it, it's in a, something pretty gruesome. Yeah. Um, but, he ha- but he has to feel like he's, like, a good person in front of his family. There, there could have yeah. been more there. There could have been... Yeah. I'm not saying add more scenes of that, but you you could you could almost turn what was going on with Ethan Hawke's character that third of the movie and i think that's the one that most supports making a full movie out of this sort of religiously charged supporting his family thing that shows the the, the process of what's going on yeah. in Hawke's head yeah. as he finally like just descends into becoming this like training day character yeah and i guess yeah. that does fit in with some of like the kind of mafia-ish tropes of like where you have a guy who in front of his family is like a good father, blah blah blah, and then mm-hmm. in front of his his gang, basically he he behaves differently. Yeah. Um, well, the movie ends in the same housing projects where it begins and where yes. everything takes place. So the three storylines all kind of connect. Um, I think maybe in a more successful way than New York, I Love You, which is another New York movie where <sighs> yes, all of them yes. are like supposed to connect at the end. Um, but this one. Uh, what I really liked about how this happened, so basically all three of the storylines lead our main characters to the same, the same projects, building, the basically. same building, yeah, yeah. and um, and they f- they physically like walk past each other. <laughs> yes, which I loved, yes. I loved yes. that so much. Um, I think that I think Ethan Hawke and Richard Gere don't cross paths in the scene, but. Uh, Ethan Hawke and uh, Don Cheadle like literally walk right past each other on their well, way. Yes. And... Yeah. Well, Richard Gere is in the car. He's following the van with the kidnappers. Yes. 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 And so when he he drives past, and then Donald che- Don Cheadle crosses the street behind him, then Ethan Hawke walks right, past. Right, so right, right. they do all like cross in the same yeah. block. Um. So that was fun. Um. But and yeah. Basically. The... Yeah. They they all end up roaming the corridors of the project. But, and this is the part I was not sure. I wasn't sure if they were literally about to like all turn the corner and be in the same like physical hallway. They, I, I pay, started paying close attention. The corridors are all slightly differently decorated. So you get the sense that 
the, the geography becomes slightly confusing when you would expect it to be the tightest because they seem to be in slightly different buildings or structures. But then also at one point there's gunshots and Richard Gere clearly hears the gunshots from another yeah. character's mm-hmm. plot line. And that was when I was like, okay, is are one of them about to bust onto the scene of another? Like the, t- the tension that that possibly happening was there. But I also, when I was like stopped and then was really paying attention, it didn't seem physically possible because they were in physically different corridors. Mm-hmm. It was just an odd little detail of set design where we knew the characters were all right up next to each other, but then we were also being sort of communicated to that they were at some small distance apart. Mm-hmm. Right, not, yeah. Not choice. Yeah, it is, it is kind of unclear how exactly how close they are to each other. I mean, my my just passing impression was that Richard Gere and Don Cheadle were kind of close to each other, and Ethan Hawke was... Well, okay, because when we see Ethan Hawke and Don Cheadle, they look like they're walking in different directions when they pass each other. Mm-hmm. So I think they're going to... So Ethan Hawke is going to, like... I think they're, I think like, they're building across the plot, the Yeah, there are, like, two buildings that share a courtyard yeah, area. Yeah, and I think that and they're s- in that sort of mm-hmm. building complex. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, you're right. The, the geography of it is a little confusing, but. Um, but yeah, so Richard Gere uh, that sees that girl that had been on the missing the missing person sign. Yeah. He sees her getting kidnapped after he's about to like he's in he's the about car to about himself. to kill himself, yeah. you know, like mirroring what was happening at the beginning. He's about to do it, but then he sees them take her. And so then he's like, well, screw it. I was about to kill myself anyway. I'll just follow and see what happens. I feel yeah it's like what happens and uh so they end up at the building um then ethan hawk his what brings him there is he knows that there's like a stash of money that he's gonna try to steal from like some drug dealers that i think they were gonna do a raid on them but it got called off yeah Mm -hmm. so he goes to that location anyway but he made be made sure to like circle it three times on the (laughs) piece of paper where it lists the address so that uh his friend ronnie knows where to follow him yeah and then uh who's our last oh don Cheadle. so don Cheadle, wesley snipes has been uh shot when the the drug deal gone wrong he was set up it was a whole thing um it wasn't actually in the drug deal, but like the other guys yeah. from the gang wanted to take the deal instead of him. So then he ended up getting shot in that process. Right. And so Don Cheadle is so fed up with the feds and, uh, you know, the police officer that he works with and also the other guys in the gang who set up Wesley Snipes yeah. uh, that he is going to avenge his death by going after Michael K. Williams and the other two main guys that we see in the gang. Yeah. Right. The the FBI were interested in capturing Wesley Snipes, but they weren't, as soon as it started being um, Michael K. Williams, they weren't interested in capturing him. Yeah. Which they, they sort of explained it, but in a way that I didn't understand the logic there about like why one was a catch and the other was just whatever. Right, yeah. yeah. I, I guess yeah, maybe sure. it was, he, he was out on parole, and so there was maybe like a longer sentence or something. It's a bit odd. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, I don't know. They were specifically targeting him. He's like more of a crime boss, whereas the other guys are like low mm. level. Maybe could be used more if they were still out in, you know, 
uh, as members of the gang instead of in prison. I'm not sure. Yeah, that sounds likely. That sounds likely. Yeah. Yeah, because we because yeah. uh, we we basically get to this point where like like we said like the the FBI lady is like oh well you know this is she says some like really racist stuff about like this is like yeah she the says she's not gonna go out into the jungle and clean up monkey uh, shit is yeah, what she says yeah. which is so just like Woof. fucked yeah, yeah and so basically besides the the racist part of it what she's conveying is that um nothing's gonna come of this like yeah. he's dead just we're moving on now. Um, and that's how he kind of decides, like, okay, he has to do this himself. And the most credit I will give the FBI agent Smith, the credit to the character, is that in that scene where Don Cheadle is basically about to physically punch her and has to be restrained, she seems kind of ready to throw down. <laughs> like she, She's also ready to get into a fist fight with Don Cheadle. So I thought, yeah, that's probably the most feminist message that's to be found. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he just Don Cheadle really just like he he does it. Yeah, he goes. He's in that elevator. He goes down. The second the doors open, he doesn't even look at who he's shooting at. He yeah. just shoots, and he gets like one, two of the guys, and well, he gets Michael K. Williams, and but Michael K. Williams is able to like hobble away. Yeah, and so then the other guy's like, "Listen, don't shoot me. You know, I'm like I'm cool." And so then he leaves him alone and goes after. Oh, was, that was great. He just says, "I have no animosity with you." <laughs> I just thought that was a great line read. Yeah. Uh, yeah. With him just being like, "Hey, hey, uh, I'm I'm cool. Let's uh, I'll just keep walking away." And I was surprised that that worked. Like I really thought he was going to say that, and Don Cheadle was just going to shoot him. Yeah. But he he well he doesn't shoot him, but he does shoot michael k williams yeah because yeah i really like that so he basically chases him he's hobbling because he's been shot in the gut so yeah. he's bleeding out and he's hobbling and he makes it out into the street and then uh it's this whole big reveal that don Cheadle is a cop yeah and then and he's, he's just like no you're not and, and he's, he's just like look at this badge and then and then michael k williams read he says you're gonna gun me down the street and then don Cheadle just says yeah and shoots him repeatedly yeah not not before he talks some more shit though oh my god that was so good is that red's like oh are you gonna arrest me officer tango like he's already been <laughs> shot and he's yeah. just like mock putting his hands on its back i was just like damn dude yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's gonna he's gonna go out he's gonna go out talking smack yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, and that, then that tragically, was, Brian oh. Brian F. O'Byrne, who's there to like stop Ethan Hawke from you know committing more crimes, yeah, Ronnie. Uh, yeah, he he shoots Don Cheadle, thinking that he's happened upon some like gang violence or something. Yeah, but then he he gets to him and he sees the badge on his hip, and then he he like freaks out and he's like, ah, officer down, you know, call call an ambulance. But he yeah. does kind of hesitate because he's like really he's fucked up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But shoots him in cold blood, though. Like, no, no, stop. Well, You're I think no, on, on their team, because he's on that team that does the raids with Ethan Hawke, on their team, I think they're, they shoot, shoot black first. men first mm. and ask questions later. Like, yeah. that's, I think that's kind of their MO. Even though he is the good cop, the quote-unquote good cop, he's only so much right. a good cop. You know, he's still he on that team, team with that True. specific doctrine. Death squad, basically. Yeah. 
with, with all the bodies kind of like falling like one after the other here, I made a note that it felt like watching The Departed, but it's slightly slower motion. I was looking at this. I was looking at this on Letterboxd and there were like some the, there were multiple comparisons to The Departed throughout. And I think this movie came out would have come out after. Right. When did this movie come out? Yeah, after. Yeah. So this is a, a cup a few years after. <laughs> Um, cause yeah, there is this kind of, this buildup of similar to the departed of where are, we're all moving toward this critical point and it's all going to happen around the same time. And yeah, like all, everyone's just getting shot just all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, including Ethan Hawke who like goes into this apartment, just guns down this entire like group of men who are like, basically all of them are unarmed yeah they're just like sitting there like yeah, watching just, tv or yeah, something or, like, i don't know video games like just minding their own business mm-hmm. and he just kills basically all of them and then he finds the money in this laundry machine um and then he just gets shot yeah yeah like oh shit yeah and then really good classic shot of him like splayed out on his back with the blood pool starting to grow underneath him i love that it's a classic death scene <laughs> shot if only he'd like fallen on his face and taken his shirt off so that we could see the angel wings again. <laughs> From under. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. And so then Richard Gere is saving, he goes to save that girl and there are two other girls there. And so he has to kind of orchestrate them all to get out. But then he, he manages to handcuff one of the guys, but then another guy comes in and um so then it turns into a big fight and the thing that i the only thing i wrote down about this scene was zip tie because that was so good he manages to like he's being choked by this guy and he reaches behind him and he grabs a zip tie and so then he gets it around the guy's neck and he just pulls it yeah, yeah. The guy just like chokes he chokes to death yeah it's pretty fucking intense it was kind of out of the the film's vibe i it yeah. felt like almost like a john wick kind of move it's like uh-huh. just using a simple zip tie to just like kill a person it was just like imp- kind of impressive that he busts it out with this in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. also um i need to look up who the actor was who came into the room second because for some reason he just he just really tickled me at the end of this movie <laughs> because he comes in like carrying bags of groceries yeah and he's just so blasé He's just kind of like, man, get out of my apartment. Yeah, he yeah. just like he's like, oh, let me set the groceries down. Like he's like <laughs> talking to his like wife. Like he just does not. He's just super calm about it, and he and basically so proceeds to like make fun of Richard Gere, which is like feels cutting after all of the like mockery that Richard Gere has been subject yeah. to. He's basically like, you know, like he 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 just mo- he openly mocks him. He says something like, "The devil makes it so easy for me." Yeah, like yeah. It, it's. Kind of, it's it's sort of an odd choice, but it, it is yeah, it is kind of hilarious because you know Richard Gere ends up sh- basically shooting him through the heart, and this guy doesn't seem to care very much, yeah, and then yeah, continues yeah. to get into this like brawl with Richard Gere where he's like choking him until yeah. the zip tie comes out. Zip tie. Yeah, and then and then at the very end, basically, we have Richard Gere like walking down the street, down the middle of the street, and you have like dozen ambulances a dozen police cars behind him and he's just kind of calmly walking through yeah it's kind of like a what now yeah ending for him oh one of my favorite scenes with richard gear one of my favorite scenes in this movie 
I really liked it. It was like it was a rare kind of like subtle moment um, where he's he's retired. He because okay by the time he does oh, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's already actually retired. Right. Because he goes into the uh, the office and it's like a completely bare office. There's just a guy sitting behind a desk who's like, all right, badge gun, whatever. Gives him his gun. He like signs a little slip. He gives him the badge and the guy, the cop, like just like flings it into a box of other into, badges. Like, a, yeah, cardboard box. Yes, filled with other the badges. The cardboard box with other badges. I wrote that down. That was such a great little detail. Yeah, just and, like, and just oh, like the apathy, and just like the idea that like that Richard Gere is he he he's like okay he this whole time he's been like this twenty two year career has not been very meaningful to him. He doesn't really care about it. He just wants to get out. But mm-hmm. now that he's actually there and it's so unceremonious that him him like being him his retirement, the the official part of that process, that it actually kind of sinks into him that he's like, Oh, I spent twenty years of my life doing this and this is how it ends. Like mm-hmm. it's just it's a it's a it's a little like subtle moment and he's just kind of standing there looking off. And it it and it, it it's it's a very little thing, and it feels like actually does feel like an effective catalyst for him to like. Now that he's not a cop anymore, that he actually now is when he decides, funnily enough, to actually do something heroic. And I think but that, there's one more beat. There's one more beat in that journey because then he goes to the prostitute, and he arrives mm-hmm. early before their appointment. Yeah, literally walks in on her having sex with another man and she while like still basically making sex noises to the man that she's physically involved with sort of does a gesture with her hand like hey what what one one minute one minute Wait <laughs> yeah you know and he he's literally sits on the stairs and like kind of like covers his ears like yeah, a kid yeah. who's been told to like put earmuffs on um it's fawn style and then when the guy walks out, he like puts on a cop hat. It's yeah. another police officer. Actually, I wasn't sure. Was that the same officer who was like one of the locker bullies Maybe. at the beginning? Oh, it could have been. Yeah, it could have it just, been. I, was, I wasn't sure, but it could. Yeah. All the all the subtlety of that retirement scene, and then just goes completely the opposite direction for just showing him like emasculated and like destroyed and the most like crude analogies they possibly could find. Yeah. Yeah. And so then also in the scene, he asks her to, to leave with him to go cause he's retiring to Connecticut and he's like, come with me. And she gives him a retirement gift, like a nice watch that's like engraved with a message to him, yeah. you know, like she, yeah, from a boy George song. Yeah. And she clearly seems to care about him, but I think that, she cares about him within the boundaries of the relationship that she, you know, that they've set up there, which is like a, you know, a business, yeah, you know, exchange, uh, and, uh, and so he starts to sing "Sea of Love" to her, and it's really tragic. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god. And then she's like, "Leave." Yeah. It's, <laughs> Leave it's, immediately when he doesn't get the hint. He, yeah. she gets pissed at the sea of love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, like everything, everything with Richard Gere's character is set up to just be so depressing. Like that, that we're just like so. Everything is so obviously bad for him, and that, I think that's part of the reason why I liked that badge scene so much. Is that on the surface it doesn't seem that terrible, but the it's 
the way it sort of sinks in for him, it, it's like a scene where like, you know, it's a sad scene, but it's not like he's being like belittled or like emasculated like he is in the entirety of the rest of the movie. Um, and it ends up being more powerful by comparison because it's not it's not so overt, you know. So, yeah. Well, is that the movie? That's the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what happens. One one final note is that he walk in that final shot as he walks away from the chaos. Um, I'd written down in my notes, speed, question mark, because I wasn't sure if we were going to get a 90s style ending where the credits just started rolling up from the bottom, uh, uh-huh. like oh, sort of over a scene of milling oh, people. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I think speed ends that way. The mm-hmm. Fugitive ends that way. I think there's a lot of 90s action or disaster movies where there's sort of a, a crowd shot and the camera sort of pulls mm-hmm. up on a crane at the end totally. and then credits roll. Right, right, in this right. case, there's like a freeze frame and then after a few seconds of uh, Richard Gere in looking ambivalent, then things fade to black and we get the uh, the credits. Not a 90s style roll from the bottom. Yeah, although but, although a freeze frame and then credits does feel <laughs> of a certain time. Yeah. Certainly. Just a different vibe. <sighs> yeah. Mixed feelings. Mixed feelings. Yeah. I have a um, I didn't pull up a review from the time because I just didn't. I wasn't that prepared today. But I did read a fun letterbox review of this movie that I wanted to share. It's from letterbox user Lee. <laughs> uh, he says, four stars. After having the worst day of his life and killing Detective Alonzo Harris, Jake had to change his identity to <laughs> Sal and move his family into a shack full of mold. I wonder after that day he wishes he went if after that day he wishes he went along with Harris. Edward Lewis went through a bad divorce with his so-called prostitute who had taken all his money. <laughs> Salvaging what he had left and changing his name to Eddie, he decided to join the police force for the rest of his life and live in a shack. Buck Swope <laughs> is another one who had to change his identity after swagging loads of cash and running off with his girlfriend. They decided to move to Brooklyn, and he joined the police force, getting into undercover, having changing his uh, changed his identity to Tango. Uh, uh, yeah. So, yeah. That's fun. That's fun. Yeah. I looked up the Roger Ebert review because I assumed as the film critic of choice uh-huh. by the Hawkeyes podcast. They were, he was going to be quoted. Uh-huh. Um, and he, I, he, did, he gave it a, one of the most positive reviews of the range that was distributed on Metacritic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really, I mean, he kind of had his tongue in his cheek. I really liked his, uh, a few lines in his review. Um, uh, his suggestion that uh, three cops, three journeys to what we suspect will be doom. No good can come of the lives they lead. They aren't bad guys, not precisely, but they occupy a world of such unremitting violence and cynicism that they're willing to do what it takes to survive. In the kind of coincidence provided only by fate or screenplays, each one will mean trouble for the other two. And he had the great line after describing how hard-bitten the world of the film is. I don't believe it's like this for most cops, but somehow it is for the great majority of movie cops. <laughs> yeah. It, it felt like that. It felt like this universe where like this, this is the world where every dark cop drama is taking place in 
where everyone's on the take or doing something racist or awful and it is impossible to just sort of summon anything optimistic or positive which is sort of my way of saying it's a documentary of the american police system (laughs) 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 getting a little political here on the pod um yeah i love roger he turns a good phrase in his reviews yeah um, Jonathan, do you have something you'd like to share with us? Sure. I might have to uh, do a little, little minimize Max yeah. real quick. All right. We've... Yeah, we can have him on one side and the yeah, hot fact on the there other. there we go. All right. Oh, no. he's He went away. We're going to bring him back. He, no one can see what's happening right now except yeah. for us, but that's fine. <laughs> okay. So I've gotten to a point where some of my hawk facts... Oh, I'm going to do a hawk fact. Oh, caca. Ooh, nice. um, <laughs> where some of my hawk facts are not so much facts about hawks, just like news stories involving uh-huh. hawks. But listen, I can't, you know, we've got a lot of movies to get through, so they're not all going to be that information. Right, yeah, yeah, Like yeah. this one. So we have the story, Brooklyn Residents. This is uh, courtesy of NewYork.CBSLocal.com. Brooklyn Residents, red-tailed hawks terrorizing neighborhood. Uh, and I love this little bit of, of of this introduction. Some Brooklyn residents say they're afraid to leave their homes, not because of crime, but because of aggressive birds. This is uh, 2014. Um, as CBS 2's John Slattery reported, one resident said she was targeted, targeted, and attacked by a red-tailed hawk. The big nest sits atop a fire escape, and it's from there that Taja Coleman was attacked in the back of the head. Yikes. Boom, bit, put my hand on the back and got a handful of blood, Coleman recalled. Woo. Uh, the location is on Gates Avenue and Bedford Stuyvesant, where a pair of red-tailed hawks chose a six-floor fire escape for their nest. Um, and that's, that's, I'm glad they included that. It's very, it's useful information. You don't normally get that out of news articles. It's true. It's like don't yeah. don't go to this particular stairwell. <laughs> yeah, and well, apparently neither can the resident because she was saying, uh, "I can't go out on the balcony anymore." Uh, he's ba- he basically owns the balcony. It's not ours anymore. And then we have a a fun little quote from her brother Kareem who says, "They're living there like we're living here. They need to start paying rent." <laughs> Um, and they're unable to do they're not really able to do anything about this nest themselves because uh federal law prohibits tampering with uh raptor nests so true so hopefully coleman and her brother have gotten some sort of resolution i didn't i didn't follow up but Um, my favorite thing about that was that the cbs reporter was named john slattery <laughs> I'm glad that that's what you took from my hog fact. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, any any final thoughts? Brooklyn's finest, um, Ethan Hawk. I wish I could contribute um, a Hawk fan of my own. If this was a podcast about Jill Scott Heron, I could contribute something <laughs> because. I did amateur bird calling as part of a high school contest. Wow. Which means that a long time ago, I had to learn how to imitate the cry of the rufescent tiger heron. 
Oh my god. Wow. Tiger herons are not hawks, so it would be inappropriate to do it. <laughs> well, how did you do? Oh, it was this. This was a very strange thing. It was like a tra- this bird calling tradition at my high school, Piedmont High School, um, in the East Bay. But the actual thing that it was was really like a comedy skit contest where you would have okay. a theme mm-hmm. and you would have to somehow work your bird and like information about the bird and eventually the bird call into the skit. Oh my god! Like this was all. Very elaborately contrived, but it, it it was my high school's like proudest tradition, um, and uh, it, that's my that's my that's my only claim to fame. I actually got to be on a very short segment of the Letterman Show because I got second place. So the first, wow. second, and third place, they they had like a long standing agreement. It was the Leonard J Wax Deck Bird Calling Contest at Piedmont High School, which, by the way. If you're going to be known for hosting a bird calling contest, I feel like Leonard J. Waxdeck is, like, <laughs> is the what? best name. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. I did not know that. That's amazing. Is there footage yeah, of this anywhere? I, 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 there is. I technically have access to it, and I sort of keep it in a hidden vault to only show people <laughs> after I trust them um, because it's both very dangerous to reveal anything about your high school self. And also, it's me going on national television to make a bird call, which makes me both look kind of like a fool. So it's something that I only want to like unveil after a certain point in getting to know someone. Well, like for know, example, this is the first time I've revealed it to you, and, I'm and also for our what, listeners, six years, <laughs> <laughs> and also you're sharing with our listeners. So, so that's that's a big that's a big honor. True. I'm, I'm hoping that uh, my difficult to spell last name will keep me as anonymous <laughs> as possible. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm gonna do some research, and if the people, if I find it, I'll share it with the people out there. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when you've decided to trust us. Yeah. Harper is immediately I'm, like, I'm going to share this information once I find it. Incredible. You learned your lesson, Max. Was this in the year 2006, per chance? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) That that sounds like a very probable year. Interesting, interesting. Oh, God. Okay. Okay. (laughs) If you see a chubby high schooler in khakis uh, with curly hair, you probably nailed it. Well, I saw there was an image, like a preview image, but then when I went to the page, there was no... There was no image there. <laughs> this article is called Piedmont High Students Make Bird Calling Cool. Uh, we were in no danger of making bird calling cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, the whole thing like, is something that people sort of do ironically. Mm-hmm. But it was the thing that I actually recall is that they did have someone who was like, Part, part of your judging criteria was be making a funny comedy skit, but it was also like the quality of your bird call. So they had a person there who was like a real like birder. Expert, yeah. Yeah, who knew all these bird calls. So there was someone who was independently very good at the practice of doing these imitation bird calls, which I feel like must be sort of an art in decline. I feel like there can't be a whole lot. Although maybe if there was somebody who could make uh, red-tailed hawk cries... They could lure those red-tailed hawks to a safer location where they wouldn't competing for balcony space. 
sure. you know, maybe there's still a cause for people to make good bird calls in our urban landscape. It's true. Yeah, that's true. Some some uh, like bird population restoration, you know. <laughs> like it's a bit of a Pied Piper situation, yeah. but. Well, okay. Well, I'm obsessed with this photo that I did find, uh, but. We'll save that for another time. Um, Max, <laughs> thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it has been a treat. I have been Harper. You can find me on the internet harping about on Twitter and Instagram and Letterboxd and other places, I'm sure. Pinterest. Um, <laughs> and something I've been enjoying outside of Ethan Hawke is uh, I watched Fighting With My Family today, and it was so fun. If you've ever wanted to see... Florence Pugh and The Rock in a movie together and it's an inspirational sports movie where also women overcome their differences to work together to dominate a male uh, a primarily male dominated sport uh, I would recommend fighting with your family what fun. it was very fun Jonathan how about you where the can the people okay find you? well I'm Jonathan you can find me on IG and uh, at Letterboxd uh-huh. at John Zavaleta yep it's J-O-N J-O-N and uh, I think I've been enjoying a couple of comic-related uh, medias mm-hmm. recently. We finished watching The Watchmen. Yeah, I was going to say that, but I figured you'd say it, so I did Or just Watchmen, I should Watchmen. say. Watchmen, yeah. yes. Uh, since we've gotten rid of the thes in things. Yes. Where no, I mean, it was called Watchmen <laughs> anyway, but uh, there's no the Joker. It's just Joker. Just Joker, yeah. Um, um, yeah, thanks again to uh, Edgar Montplazier for insisting that we watch that and for making it possible. Yes. Um, there yeah. was generous donation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that was, I really liked that. I thought that was really good. And uh, recently I've been re-watching uh, or just watching Batman the Animated Series uh, because we went to see... Uh, Birds, Birds of, of Prey, Prey, and I was like, I like Batman, and so I, I, <laughs> I sort of felt the need to to dig up these Batman the Animated Series episodes, and by dig up, I mean I've started a trial subscription to DC Universe <laughs> just to watch this show. It's a seven-day trial, so I'm going to be spending a lot of time watching <laughs> Batman the Animated Series, because season one has 60 episodes. Uh, they're only 22 Wait, minutes, but, what? but it's a lot. 60? Yeah, I think that they, but there's two seasons. There's just two the, seasons. They must be combining like the different series because I think there's like, I remember there being like three seasons before they changed their animation slightly. So maybe it's like they collapsed them all into these two seasons. Presumably, with yeah. tons of stuff because 60, think about how many episodes you turn out in a year. Holy God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this is two seasons over the course of the show had a like what three year run, right? So Sounds right. I think the season season one is kind of just a loose designation to just split these episodes in half. In any case, it's a lot of episodes and, and I'm uh and I'm and I'm really enjoying it. So fans of Batman, if you haven't heard of Batman the animated series <laughs> <laughs> Fans of Batman, you might enjoy Batman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's 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 where I'm at. Yeah. Uh, Max, where can the people find you? And do you have anything else you'd like to plug? And uh, what have you been enjoying outside of Ethan Hawke? The you can find me as Max Victory 
on Letterboxd. Um, my actual username is Salt Liquor because I never match my username to my actual name that I go by because I'm a little bit eccentric like that. Um, <laughs> of what I've been enjoying recently, um, I am about to start doing a dive on Indian cinema. Uh, it is a whole, it is like five or more separate film industries all producing tons and tons of films a year that I is I have virtually never touched outside watching a couple films like uh, Bahubali um, and going into maybe exploring some of the big hits over the years and seeing the differences between um, the Hindi film industry versus like the Tamil and Telugu film industries or the West Bengal film industries. I'm keen to see that. Meantime, I keep just hopscotching all over my watch list. In terms of a recent film I'm, I've seen that I would recommend, I would suggest uh, Miss Hokusai, which is an animated film available on Netflix. Is a I described it as a sentimental film about unsentimental people, which was interesting. It actually kind of touched me. It reminded me of... Um, of, of an old girlfriend I had who it had that sort of sense of reserve and caution that she had about people while still having like clear desires and depths. And it was, just, it felt like all of a sudden that I'd been transported back in time and saw this person acting in the same way that I remembered from my past, which is obviously a very personal experience that you will not experience <laughs> unless you've had that same person. But it is still a pretty interesting film that is low key and uh, approaches a subject matter that animated film rarely do, which is women artists in uh, 19th century Japan that are slightly overshadowed by their fathers. Wow. Okay. Wow. Sounds specific, but that's, you know, specific is good. It makes good, uh, good film. Yeah. Good stories. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, uh, Max, stick around. We need to take a selfie with you uh wow. on the computer and thanks everyone for listening uh we'll see you next week good night yeah bye-bye see ya